you want to take your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. That's where we've been for the last few weeks. It's where we will finish our Christmas series uh, here together. John 1, focusing on verses 14 through 18 uh, specifically. And what we have in this section, what we have here beginning in verse 14, really all of the prologue, uh, verses 1 through 18, what we really have uh, here is unprecedented. It's, it's literature that we should really focus on. Now, I, so, I know that sounds kind of bombastic, but I, I, don't, I don't think it is. And I, I want to try to explain myself of why I do not think it is. And that will be the goal this morning for us to see that what we have here in this writing really is the most important writing, I think, that we have anywhere. I don't know about you, but for me, one thing that I do not enjoy is waiting. I hate it. Uh, there are exceptions to that. I have grown to the point now where I don't mind waiting for a good meal. If you, if you like to like smoke meat or anything like that, you know that you have to, to wait often. I remember the first time I, I got a smoker, you know, and I was like, I'm going to make a brisket for everybody, and everybody showed up at the time I told them, and the brisket wasn't even close to being done. I'm like, well, we're going to have this brisket medium rare today. And that's not what you do with brisket, okay? You need to wait. And quite frankly, the crowd that I had wasn't willing to wait, and neither, neither was I. Uh, but I just don't enjoy waiting. I, I know that it can be excruciating, and I know that there's different levels of it as well. Uh, waiting on test results can be so hard. You don't know what's going to happen uh, and it really could be a matter of, of life and death at times uh, with those types of things. And it's frustrating when you hear the doctor say something like, well, we'll have your test results in like a month. And you're like, what, a month? It shouldn't take that, it shouldn't take that long, right? We get, we get frustrated uh, with those types of things. And so our, our anxiety levels raise in this time of, of waiting or, or maybe waiting to hear from a from a job interview that you had, but the job that you, you really wanted, you were hoping to get, it would really help you and your family maybe, or it would help you advance in your career. And you have to wait. You have to wait to hear if you are going to get this, this job that you were hoping for. Now, I know those are some higher level things uh, to wait for, but for me, it's often the low level ones that I really struggle at. And I'll give you an example. It's a little embarrassing, but it's okay. It wasn't just a few days ago. I was getting gas. It was like 1.30. I was getting gas. I needed to eat. <clears throat> I can't remember. Afterwards, I had basketball practice or a game or something like that. So I'm like, I need to eat now because I'm not going to get to eat till very late tonight. And I saw Arby's. I don't know what you think about Arby's, but it's fine with me. And so I, I see there's nobody really in the parking lot, and there's nobody in the drive-thru. Now, if you know me, I don't do drive-thrus. I don't like them. I hate them. I despise when my family says, just go to the drive-thru. And dads know this because you say, well, what do you want? And they're like, I don't know. I'm like, we've been to McDonald's five million times. You should know what you want. Just tell me what you want. They're asking me. Right? I just, I don't know. Just, it's too tense for me or something. I just don't like the drive-thru. But I go to Arby's and there's nobody there. And I'm like, this is going to be perfect. I'm in a rush. And I get up to the menu and the lady says, could you just wait a minute? And while you wait, look at the menu. I said, all right, and I drove away. I'm like, this is ridiculous. There's nobody here. What am I waiting on? And so I went to McDonald's. That was next door, and I had to wait there too, but I was like, whatever, I'm, I'm starving. 
This is how petty I am with waiting. I just want you to see that. And while you judge me, no, I'm sure some of you do the exact same. It's just not part of my life that I enjoy of waiting. Well, as we get to the Gospel of John and what John is writing about here, in this point of history, the Jewish people, Israel, had been waiting for thousands of years. And in fact, when John is writing this, they, had, they actually hadn't heard from God for about 400 years. And they had been waiting for this one that was promised. They're, they're waiting to, for God to provide what he had said he would provide for all of these years, and that is the promised Messiah, the king that would be above all the kings, the Lord that would be above all lords, the redeemer of the people of Israel. This is what they had been waiting for. Now, my, my meal really is small compared to that, is it not? It's really minimal. In fact, even the other things that we talked about are very, very small when you think about the promised Messiah, and that's what we're waiting for. But yet, this is what Israel has been waiting for, and they had been waiting, as I said, for a very long time. You see, at the very beginning of the Bible, we begin to see uh, some of these promises being made by God to his people that one is going to come, even all the way back early on in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, sin had, sin had occurred, there were curses being made, but God had promised that one was going to come from the seed of woman and crush the head of the serpent, that this would happen, that this would take place. And so at the very beginning, the waiting starts. When will this be? When is this going to take place? As you continue on in the book of Genesis, you, you meet Abram, whose name goes to Abraham. And there's an interesting thing in Genesis chapter 14. We won't read it, but I'll just explain it to you a little bit this morning. Where Abraham comes to the town of Salem and he meets this king. The king's name is Melchizedek. And what happens is an interesting story because Abraham ends up paying tithes and offerings to this, to this king. You can, you can study more of this on your own if you would want, but what we learn of, of Melchizedek is really within his name. He, he's a king, but his name means righteousness. So he's the king of righteousness in the city of Shalom, the city of peace. And what we later see in, in Psalms, in Psalm 110, uh, in Psalm 110 it tells us that the Messiah will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so with this, with this guy Melchizedek, again, who's an interesting figure in Scripture, you have a king of peace and of righteousness, but also a priest. And you have Abraham paying tithes to this one. And so this is an interesting thing because what, what we tend to look for and what we're looking forward to in this line of Mel, Melchizedek here is we are looking for one to come in his line who will be the same, who will be a priest, who will be a king, you see in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35, it should be on the screen, it says, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Again, you can study Melchizedek a little bit more on your own if you would, if you would like to do that. But the Bible never tells us when he was born. The Bible never tells us when he dies. And so... There's this idea with him of, of reigning forever and that this is the kind of priest that the one to come would be. And that's what we see there in Samuel, that there's going to a priest that it's not going to be, not never going to die. And so the priest can then be your priest, can be your mediator for, forever and forever. 
once and for all, instead of the, the line of priests from, from Aaron and Levi and all those. And so we, we have this in Scripture that Israel is waiting for. Well, as you continue on in the Old Testament and 2 Samuel and Chronicles and these places, we come across King David. Uh, King David is a very important figure in the Old Testament and Scripture. And there are prophecies that are foretold from King David uh, where we are told that the Messiah that we are waiting for is going to come in the line of David, will be a, a son of David, and that this is the king that Israel needs. David even writes about this some in, in Psalm 2. It's not on the screen, but in Psalm, in Psalm 2, uh, I, I really like this psalm, but it says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, this is what Israel is waiting for. They're, they're waiting for one to come who is going to be a king in the line of David, but is going to be much greater than David because David dies. Because David can't do anything for them anymore. They are waiting for the king who will sit on the throne forever, who will dash all of their enemies into pieces. Israel longs for this day, but they've been waiting for a very long time. They long for the priest that will reign forever. They, they long for the savior who is going to save them from all of their troubles. They long for the king who will reign on the throne forever. But there's other things, real quickly, in the Old Testament. Even though there's, a much, there's much more to know, but there's, there's just two more, real quickly, that I want to share with us before we can really grasp what's going on, I think, in John. You see, in Job, in the, in the book of Job, there's a portion in there where Job, he says this in chapter 9. He says, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. He's talking about God here. He says, There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. You see, Job was having a problem. He had lost everything, and he was having a lot of conversations with his friends. But Job realized something. Job realized that there was nobody that could mediate between him and God. There was no person who could stand there and let Job speak and then let, jo and then let God speak and then decide what's best. And why does Job say that? He says there's nobody who can put their hand on God and mediate here. There's nobody that can do that. So what Israel actually is looking forward to and what the prophecies foretold is what we see in Isaiah 9-6, which is such a common passage for us during the Christmas season. You'll know it as I read it. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
You see, what Israel was waiting for is they were waiting for God. They were waiting for God to come. They were waiting for God to come and to be king, to be savior, to be, to be Lord. This is what the expectation was. That's why I say what I said about what we have here in the Gospel of John, that it really is uh, the, the most important words that we have written in all of literature. Because what John is claiming to us here in his Gospel is that what Israel is waiting for and has been waiting for has in fact came. Look in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Pastor Spencer already read it earlier. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. What we have in verse 14 telling us that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us was what Israel had been waiting for. In fact, it's what all mankind has been waiting for and it has happened. John establishes here that the word was with God, that the word is God, that all creation has been made through the word, and now what he's telling us and what he's telling those he's writing to uh, early on in the church's life is that the word has come and dwelt with us. Literally, what it's saying, and maybe you've heard this before, that the word has tabernacled with us. Now that's important. That's an important thing to understand because in the Old Testament, it's the tabernacle that God had set up it's a tabernacle that God had told his people to make because God said, I need to dwell among you, but I can't dwell among you normally because you're all sinners. And so I can't just come and dwell with you. And so I need you to make a tabernacle. And he, he gave a very specific way to make the tabernacle. And then he went on to say, but not just this tent, not just this tabernacle, you need to do these things as well. And it involved sacrifices, it involved a lot of blood, it involved a lot of, a lot of cleansing, and said, when this is done, then I can dwell with you. But this is the only way. Blood has to happen. It has to be there. But then I can dwell. And so the people would look to the tabernacle because this is where God would dwell among his people. And what John is saying now is John is saying, the word has came and tabernacled with us. Not, not in a tent. Not in something that you have constructed. No, no, he didn't come and dwell that way. The word has became flesh and tabernacled with us. John is declaring to people, he's saying, God has come and lived with you, walked, walked among you, right? This is what has happened. John is saying, God has come and he has done what we cannot. God, God has come and satisfied everything that the tabernacle was pointing to. He he has done it for us. I can't remember if it was last week or the week before. One of those weeks, we had sidewalk prophets here. In order to get a band like that to come, there's a thing called a rider. Riders are annoying. 
I'm just going to let you know that. It's a contract that you have to sign. And basically it says, you will do everything for us. We will come and sing. Okay. And we sign it. And oftentimes they will refer to the writer. Did you read the writer? Do you know what the writer says? To which I would reply, kind of. I didn't read it that extensively. But I'm sure we can get, I'm sure we can get the work done. You see, what, what God has done is God fulfilled the writer completely. You see, in the Old Testament, he says, here's the writer. This is what has to happen. You have to live this way. If you don't live this way, then you have to do this in order to be forgiven. And so the, the, you have the law, you have, you have the sacrificial system, you have the tabernacle, you have the temple, you have all these things that need to be done. And what John is declaring now is he's saying, listen, God has come and fulfilled it, fulfilled it all. He's come and he's dwelt among us. He's walked with us. And so what would you expect? If I'm reading this and I think, okay, God came and dwelt among us, we're probably in trouble. You know, it's like, it's like when you were a kid in your bedroom and you get caught. You were told to turn the TV off. You were told to turn the games off. You were told to stop playing. Parents, you thought... You thought they thought you were in bed, and they come in your room, and you're, you're caught. And what do you expect? You don't expect your parents to be nice at that moment, are they? They don't tuck you in like they did maybe before. Let's get in bed. You're in trouble. You're in trouble. That might be what we expect here. John, you're telling me the word has become flesh and has dwelt among us. This is not a good thing. This, this, this could be a, a troubling thing. We expect anger, we expect judgment, but instead what John says is, we have seen his glory, glory is of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, this is what we have in his coming. We have, we have God coming in flesh, dwelling among us, and he comes for the sake of grace and of, of truth. You see, I, I think people don't think that all the time. They, they think when they talk to Christians or when they read the Bible or when you start telling them about God or Jesus, they think what you are doing is you just want to condemn. You just want to tell them how bad they are. But if you, if you flip just a couple pages over in John chapter 3, we all know John 3.16. That's read all the time. We see it all over the place. And then we get to John 17 and we see this great truth. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, Jesus came in grace and in truth to save the world. Not to condemn the world, but to save the world. You see, the world's condemning itself because of sin. And Jesus has come to, to save sinners. And he does this with grace and truth. And this was done in a very unexpected way. I think Pastor Spencer read this as well in this morning. But in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we see the birth of Jesus and it really isn't all that spectacular. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, 
and wrapped them in swaddling clothes, laid them in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word being made flesh. And there's nothing special about it. In fact, it's a scene that would drive you and I crazy. My wife is pregnant, and now i got to travel all this way just to, to sign something? Just to be counted? Could this be any more inconvenient? You know, isn't there a better time? Could you give me maybe a little more span? Maybe she could have the baby, and then later we could go? No. It's not like this is some beautiful picture happening here. And John is telling us the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And this is how it's happened with a baby. God has come as a baby that would grow and that would live with man on this earth. This baby would experience pain. This baby would experience suffering in this world just like, just like you and I. But all of this would take place. Why? So that you and I could experience grace. That's why it happened. Again, not for condemnation, but for grace. So that we could see how much God loves us. And that's what John goes on to say after verse 14. In verse 15, he talks about John the Baptist again, which we talked about in Great Lakes in the second week of our series. Then you get to verse 16. It says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. You see, it is only from the fullness of Jesus that grace has come completely. This verse actually is a very interesting one linguistically. If you look in the original, the probable reading of this actually is, it should say, instead of, uh, let me get it here, instead of grace upon grace, it probably should read grace instead of grace, which I know seems confusing, but that's probably what it, what it should say, is grace instead of grace. And verse 17 helps us with what that means. Because look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, John now goes on to compare Moses and Jesus. You see, God used Moses in a great way, did he not? He, he gives Moses the law. He gives Moses uh, the Ten Commandments. He allows Moses to be the redeemer of Israel out of Egypt. There's so much good that comes with Moses. But when we think about Moses and when Israel would think about Moses, what they thought most of all was law, rules. This is what I'm supposed to do. Now, the purpose of the law, one of the purposes of the law is to show us our sin. And so we see that we are sinners because of the law. God also shows us within the law God's perfect order, how things should be. But what God also does in the law is God shows us his grace. And you say, well, how can that be? How, how can that be? Well, it's simply because of this. God didn't need to give anybody the law. God didn't need, anybody, need to tell anybody, hey, I'm just letting you know, when you die, you're going to go to hell because you've done things wrong. He actually laid it out for us and said, things are going wrong. That's grace. He didn't have to do that. We could have just wallowed in our, in our sin and just died and never knew anything of what God was or who he was or what he had done. But that's not what happened. God wants us to know, and so he gives us the law. And so we can see within the law that, man, I, I have sin. I, my relationship with God is, is broken, right? God is holy, and I am, I am not. 
God tells me in his word, in the law, how to be right with him, but yet I can't live up to this standard. Day in and day out, I, I fall short of the system that God has set up. What we see in the Old Testament is this system wasn't the one that was meant to last. There was one to come who was going to fulfill it all. And God said it would be his son. He's promised his son to come and to set us free from all of that. And this is what we have with Jesus. And this is what John is talking about. Jesus comes and gives us grace instead of grace. Right? It, it, it's a grace that he alone fulfills. It, it, it's a grace that is 100% complete. It, it's a grace that is cemented firmly in the truth of God. And it cannot be wavered. What Jesus has done for us is he lives that perfect life that you and I just simply know we cannot live. I would assume most of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, we do try to live a good life. Right? You, you try to do things that are, that are right. You, know, you, you try whatever it might be. You, you do attempt to do that, but I think we would all agree too that we don't do the best job with it. You see, Jesus came and he lived that perfect life that I can't live. The Bible tells us that he was sinless. No sin could be found in him. And so that allowed him to be the sacrifice that you and I needed because the sacrifice has to be perfect. I can't do it for myself. I'm not perfect. But then Jesus steps forward as the perfect one. And so Jesus accomplishes life for me in his life, but he also accomplishes death for me in his death. He accomplishes what I could not accomplish in my own death. He does it, he does it for me. So we see later on in the Gospels that Jesus would die. He would die at the hands of the Romans as they would crucify him on the cross he would go through a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, and eventually he would breathe his last breath. Then they say that they would place him in a tomb, a tomb that should have been mine, but instead Jesus lies there in my place. But then we learn that three days later that the grave could not hold him any longer and that he would, he would raise from the dead. And in raising from the dead, he would conquer death he would conquer hell and he would conquer the grave and again he would do that for you he would do that he would do that for me because again that's something that we just simply cannot do <clears throat> and as John is talking about this he uses that word so often of grace grace is a word we hear at church all the time grace is a common word maybe even in our culture but I think it is very misunderstood Grace is a gift. Grace is a, a free gift given to you and to I. This is, this is why this is the most important literature that we have. Because what John is telling us is God has done something for you that only God can do. Nobody else. But he has done it. He's done it. If only you would believe in his son and what he has done for you. That's what we have 
given to us here. And then in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John ends his prologue here, cementing once and again that Jesus Christ is the God-man, fully God and fully man, and he has come to make the Father known so that you and I, again, can have a relationship with God the Father. But it can only be done through the Son. It can only be done through Jesus Christ. And this is, this is uh, what Satan has done today and has been doing for a long time. Uh, Satan has tried to confuse many people to say, Jesus is good and he's, he's one of the ways. But there's a lot of ways. There's a lot of ways to know God. Morality will help you know God. Right? You, you can go through some other, other person, some other faith, some other religion, because in the end, all the roads really are, are, leading, are leading to God. And so if you do your best in these different religions and in these different faiths, eventually what's going to happen is we will all have the same God and be with him. It's the greatest lie Satan has told, because it's not true. He's quick to say, oh yeah, Jesus is good. No, Jesus is God. And Jesus is the only way, the only way for you to have a relationship with God the Father. There, there, is, there is no other. I know to many people that seems rude. To many people in our culture and in our day, that seems very unloving. But really, the most loving thing we can do is tell them the truth of what God's word says. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through him. And John says here at the very end, in verse 18, that Jesus has made the Father known. And that only God could do that for us. Too many people claim that if there is a God, we cannot know him personally. That's what they claim. If, if there really is a God, why would he waste his time on Tim Michelangeli in Monroe County in Michigan? Why would you even think for a second he would listen to you or care about you? He's got so many other things to deal with, would he not? To like make sure the planet's working? Aren't there, aren't there so many more important things that, that need to be done than for, for God to care about you. I mean, when they, when they say something like that, you want to respond, yeah, honestly. But that's the scandal of what we have in Scripture. Is that God is so big. God is so great. God is so capable that he does make sure all of that works. He does, he does make sure that the universe is flowing how it needs to flow. But yet at the same time, he also cares about me. He also cares about you. Little old you. And he cares about you so much that he would make a way for you to have a relationship with him. Not the other way around. It's not, you know what, Tim, if you just do enough, then you can have a relationship. No, no, no. He says, I will do it all. I'll cover it all. Here is my son. Here is Jesus. 
his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. Tim, it's all yours. And that's what he says to you this morning. That's why Christmas is such a special time. Because we celebrate the birth of Jesus, our priest forever, our king forever, our one and only savior forever. Christmas, for those of us who've been Christians for a long time, should be a reminder of the rest that we have in Jesus. It should be a reminder that yes, reminded he did come. He, he lived the life I could not. You see, a lot of you are going to reflect on this past year and you're going to think about all that you did this year and all that you wish you would have done this year and how you're going to change that next year. And really, at the end of the year, it can kind of be a down time because you think, I kind of wasted a year. And really, when we take an inventory, I think most of us would say, man, I'm not as good of a as I, as I would like to be. But as Christians, we answer that and say, of course you're not. Jesus is perfect for you. He's perfect for you. And he's given you a relationship with the Father to where the Father would look upon you as a Christian. And again, not because of your works, not because of anything that you do, because then we would just boast about it. He looks at you and he says, you're my child who I love because you are in Christ. And he loves you. And he, and he cares about you. And so we can look at our little checklist of things we failed this year, but we can be reminded that the God creator of everything loves me in such a way that he would let his son die for me in my place. And in that I have hope, in that I have peace, in that I experience love and know what true joy is. In that is where I find my rest. God has made himself known to us. And he's made himself known to us through his son, Jesus Christ. There is no other. There is no other way. I really wish that the Bible said that pastors could save somebody. I wish it would say that, you know what, pastor, if you got a member or you got a person in your church who comes and they just... They just won't confess. You know what? You can do it for them. You, you could just pray for them and it'll all be good. But the Bible just doesn't tell me that. The Bible says that you need to confess your sin. That you need to be the one to look to Christ and to believe on him. And that those who do that, they will be forgiven. They will be a part of the family of God. I really hope and pray you would do that this morning if you never have. I, I hope and pray that you would just trust in Jesus fully. You see, that's the other thing too, is you can't, you can't halfway trust in him. It, it's, a, it's a fully, it's, a, it's an all or, or nothing. And I wish you would trust him fully. That you would really understand the meaning of Christmas and what this baby being born really has done and what it means. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, I hope that we'll rest in him this Christmas season. I hope when we look at those manger scenes, when we 
drive around, maybe looking at lights when we spend time with family. I hope that we'll be reminded of the word of God that we read here. That the word became flesh. That he dwelt among us. And that we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is our story. Christians. So I hope that we'll trust that. I don't know what that is. Is that me? Turning that. Can I? There it is. Let's bow together. Let's pray, okay? God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have made a way for us in what we could not do. We thank you for the gospel of John, for the Holy Spirit leading him to write these words that we know are true. That the word was made flesh and has dwelt among us. God, we thank you that Jesus has come full of grace and of truth, not of, not of wrath, not of vengeance, but of grace and truth. And God, I pray that people would see that, that people would know that. I pray that we would be people of grace and truth as believers. That we would understand what John 3.17 there says. That Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to, to save the world. And so God, yes, people need to know of their sin need to be known what they're being saved from. But God, I pray that they would see the truth of who Jesus is and that they would love him, that they would trust in him and that they would believe in him. God, we, we thank you that you have done for us what we just cannot do on our own. We are hopeless without Jesus, but with Jesus, we have complete hope secured forever. So God, I pray that now in these last few minutes that we have together in this service, God, I pray that we would sing this song that we're going to sing and that we would do it to worship you, to praise you. But I also ask that you would help us to reflect on your word this morning, to remember what you have done for us in that baby in a manger. Fully God and fully man. God, I was reminded of a C.S. Lewis quote this week. I said that in that moment, that manger held something much bigger than this whole world. And God, only you can do a work like that. So God, we praise you for your mighty works. We praise you for your grace that you pour out on us each day. God, help us to worship you now, we ask in Jesus' name.